Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel, this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We have now for several Sundays been looking at the vice of vain glory. It is a vice that plagues not only our society, but the individual Christian in the church as well, which is one of the reasons we're looking into the matter. The opposite of vainglory is glory. And the simple definition for glory is goodness that is displayed. And if glory is good and excellent, then this puts vainglory in a very different light. One of the striking features we've seen of vainglory is that it's, it's attraction to attention. There's this burning need to be noticed. And because of this, we so easily slip from the standard of goodness that is displayed. Aquinas put it this way, that we can glory vainly in anything we do have. We can glory vainly in anything we do not have. Once again, I think we need to come back to the question, is glory only to be given to God? That is, is glory properly due ultimately to God? Or is it possible that we as human beings may receive glory, goodness that is displayed? Just to back up a bit, we have seen that vainglory has been called an AAA vice. That is, attention, affirmation, applause, or acknowledgement, approval, adulation. And as we have seen, there are two, at least two roots to vainglory. One is more obvious, I think, to us, and that is pride. The other is much less so, and that is fear. It is hard, I think, for us to initially appreciate that vainglory comes from fear. Vainglory of the prideful type is a show-off vice. That, I think, we get. But vainglory of the fearful type is a cover-up vice. We don't want people to know who we really are. And therefore, we put up a facade, we put up a show, so that they will think better of us than we think we really are. We have seen that there is shallow vainglory. The less self-aware, the more immature. This is marked by uh, an orientation toward appearance, seeing glory or seeking glory for superficial goods and oftentimes involves a certain amount of falseness, of fakery. But there is also the morally mature type of vainglory, which is what we're going to be looking at today. A person who is mature enough to have gotten over, if you wish, this idea of adulation, may in fact reach a point of maturity in their life for which people admire him or her, and then in the process, that person becomes guilty of vainglory. I said this last week, but as you study the vices, we find that vices have children, offspring, if you wish, that come from them. And the offspring vices of vainglory can be put into two categories. The first of which 
are direct, these directly, I think, um, we directly seek glory. We want people to notice us. So here we see boasting, that is, we exaggerate our good qualities, if you wish, inward. There's hypocrisy, that is, we pretend to have good qualities in action. And then there's a presumption of novelties. You know, we want to have the latest and the greatest, the most original and outrageous thing. But the second type or the second category, the vices by which we seek glory indirectly. And these, I think, are less obvious. So here we find obstinacy, that is stubbornness, contention, discord, and disobedience. Those who seek glory by boasting, we get But oftentimes we fail to recognize that those who are stubborn, those who are contentious, are in fact trying to get glory in a reactive way. They want people to notice them, not for being ostentatious, but by being different from everyone else. In obstinacy, we habitually insist on our own judgment, that we are right, and we reject the judgment of others. In discord, we tend to refuse to agree with those who are wiser than us. These are habits of the mind and the heart, and they break forth in expressions as contention and disobedience. We disobey because we don't want somebody to be the boss of us, as children would say. We, want, we do not want to lose face by seeming inferior, that there is somebody over us. Once we come to see that vainglory has children, offspring, I think it becomes easier for us to see them. We see them everywhere. The most obvious case would be that of hypocrisy. The Christian ethic tells us that we are to follow Jesus. We are to be like Jesus, put on his character, full of faithfulness, of goodness, and of patience. And we are to be perfect. God's, or Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But, in fact, we know we cannot be. And therefore, what we find is that, we saw this last week, we are living in the gap. The gap between what we are called to be and where we really are. And because of this gap, there is the temptation, I think, to try to pretend that we are something that we are not. We see that we want to be like Christ, And our actions are doing that, and yet at the same time we want to be noticed by other people. I mentioned this again last week. Imagine a child who shares his or her toys with friends. They do so because the parent bribes them. They don't want to share their toys, but mom or dad says, here, if you share your toys, I'll give you a piece of candy. Now the child acts generously, but not from a generous disposition. It does so because he or she wants to get the bribe. In a sense, we are that way as we first become Christians. We know, or we are told in Scripture, or we hear the sermon, these are the right things to do. But then oftentimes we don't do them because they are the right thing to do. We do them for other reasons. I mentioned this again last week. Fear of punishment or the desire for reward. The fear of shame and love of honor. But then the final stage, I think, is the love of goodness and of virtue. It comes after much practice. It's like a a child that is learning to play the piano. 
that at first they play, they practice because they are told they have to. There is a real sense in which fear is involved or punishment is involved. But then they reach a stage at which they want to play well because they don't want to be embarrassed by making mistakes. If they have the recital, they want to make sure that they hit the right notes. But God's grace, if they have the gift, they move on to the final stage in which they actually come to have a love for what they are doing, a love for music. And so it is with us as Christians that when we first come to the faith, we know that there are certain things we are supposed to do. And this is where hypocrisy comes in, because in fact we may do them only on Sunday when we're around other Christians or we meet other Christians during the week, and the rest of the time we do whatever we want. Or there may be a hypocrisy of, I know this is the right thing to do, I don't really feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is a real danger for the growing Christian, for the young Christian, for the immature Christian. That as they seek to move from where they are to what Christ has established as a standard, they are not in fact what they should be. Are they hypocrites? I don't think so. But they are not what they are supposed to be. And this is where vainglory is a real, a real danger. Because they don't want to appear to be a new Christian or a growing Christian. They want to appear to be mature and vainglory is a real temptation. But what about somebody who is farther along in the process? What about a mature believer? Is vainglory a danger for that person? The answer is yes. Unlike the immature believer who seeks to have something he or she does not have, The mature may, in fact, glory in what he or she does have. Like Aquinas said, you may glory vainly in what you do not have, but you may also glory vainly in what you do have. At a certain point, this seems like a no-win situation. I mean, no matter what you do or whatever you don't do, it seems like you're going to be busted. I would disagree. I would disagree. The solution, if I may call it that, to vainglory for the immature is to recognize the reality of moral formation. For a young Christian, for a growing Christian to say, hey, I realize that I am still in process. You know, I take two steps forward, one step or three steps back. You know, I I recognize that I am still in process. And at some point, be at peace with that. And not say, boy, I'm just a total hypocrite. Um but to recognize, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Paul wrote to the Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he gives us a list of what one author has called daunting virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. goes on to say, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. If I act with these virtues, if I try to show kindness, even though I don't feel like showing kindness, I'm not necessarily a hypocrite. 
but I'm rather like a reluctant child taking piano lessons. I'm still learning scales. I'm still learning these basic things. I haven't developed a love or affection for it. But as time goes on, again, I don't want to be embarrassed by messing up, so then the focus is on my performance. But then later on, there comes a love for music. In the same way with us as Christians, we go from doing things because we're told they're the right things to do, not necessarily having an appreciation for them, and then later on in our Christian lives, we don't want to be embarrassed by not doing the things we're supposed to do. And then there comes a true and genuine love for these virtues. It is in moral formation that we deliberately practice what we endorse. We do the things that we are told are right, even though we may not have that appreciation for them. They may not feel natural to us. They may, in fact, feel quite unnatural. But that's because we're still growing. There's also the issue that I brought up briefly of transformation through imitation. And we live in a world in which uh, people want to be authentic. I've got to be me. And see, the idea that I would actually imitate someone else seems false. It it doesn't seem true. I'm not being the real me. Um, Without offending you, I, I don't think you want to be the real you. Okay? I think you do, in fact, want to be transformed. We want to become like Christ. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. There is transformation through imitation. It's not hypocrisy. Okay, what about the mature believer? What about someone who is further along the road? I think we need to begin by recognizing the value of excellence or glory. This is an area where I think we would disagree uh, about with the Desert Fathers. They're the ones who created this list of vices. Um, and I, I find myself sort of having this argument with them uh, about this. For example, the Desert Fathers advise that we must avoid those things that set us apart from others. We should, we should, in fact, avoid the things that gain us praise from human beings, as if we were the only one who could do them. In other words, monks were told that they are to avoid the vice of vainglory by pursuing unexceptional, ordinary lives. Don't be unusual. Don't be great. Don't be excellent. Just be like an ordinary person. And then you won't be above the crowd, so to speak. And then vainglory won't be a danger for you. I don't agree with them. And I think here I follow more with Aquinas, who adopted the following logic. If virtue's natural reward is honor and glory... And the greater virtue you have, it elicits more honor and glory. And if God called us to perfect virtue, then the task is not to avoid honor and glory, but to confront the task of how we deal properly with honor and glory. See, what you could say is, listen, I'm just going to live a blasé life. I I just want to sort of fly below the radar. No one will notice me. And then I won't have a problem with vainglory. By the way, I think you still will, but let's, let's go with that. That is not the call. The call is not just live a, a simple life and then no one will notice you and then you won't have the problem of the vice of vainglory. I think the call is you need to 
be perfect as your Father is perfect. And in that, we are to learn to deal with honor and glory. So where do we begin? How do we begin? The person who is in fact acting with virtue, I might even say with great virtue, must ground his or her confidence in the ability to act virtuously by God's grace. So that if you sit down and and sort of take inventory of your life, you may say to yourself, you know, I am further along than I was five years ago. I can see that in certain things, certain virtues, I have progressed. I have become more mature as a person, as a believer, as a part of this congregation. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we should say is, it is by God's grace that I have moved farther down the road. The confidence of being able to achieve great things, great virtue, great actions, if you wish, are only possible because they rest in God's power. It's only because God has enabled me to pursue virtue, to be perfect as my father is perfect, that I'm able to do these things. Rebecca DeYoung, a professor at Calvin's College, who's written a book on vainglory, uh, has been very helpful to me, puts it this way. This is especially true when her virtuous action stretches her human capabilities or capacities to the limit and draws recognition and respect for her tremendous achievements. The magnanimous person's serenity in the face of such a challenge comes from her reliance on God's help to accomplish what is needful for virtue, even if this calls her beyond the reach of her own power and imagination, and even if it inspires scorn or skepticism from other people. And this is precisely what we find in our text today. We find this woman whose great expression of love shocks and offends the people who are around. But she is publicly affirmed and defended by Jesus. Jesus is her true audience, not these other people who are at the meal. They're at Simon the leper's house. She does not care one whit what they think. She is able to do something that, as DeYoung would put it, is beyond her capacity. It stretches her beyond her limits, and yet she does this amazing act of worship in pouring perfume on Jesus. DeYoung goes on to say, the magnanimous person truthfully sees how fully dependent she is on the restoring and enriching power of God, because she recognizes the limits of her own powers. But her dependence on God will, I think, also make her less dependent on her human audience for attention to her greatness and affirmation when she is stretching herself to the full extent of her gifts, with all the risks and pressures that may bring. Because she is dependent upon God, this woman, by the way, who remains nameless, is able to do something astounding, something that is amazing, In part, and I'm not even sure that there's a conscious thought going on in her mind, but there is this dependence upon God. It's not because she has the capacity. It is because of the grace of God. The magnanimous person is not a self-made man or woman or virtuous overachiever. Look at this person. Man, they've really done great things. But an awe-inspiring picture of the power of the Holy Spirit. It is because of the work of the Spirit that this woman is able to do this. The Spirit operates in and through an otherwise ordinary human being. 
to enable virtuous acts beyond what he or she can ask or imagine. And here I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his work that is his power that is at work within us. It is because of God's work in our lives that we are farther down the road. We need to recognize that. But as we go farther down the road, with great virtue comes great temptation. And three vices come to mind, particularly we've been looking at vainglory, but also presumption and ambition. Great virtue and great honor are good things. But like vainglory, presumption and ambition reflect a twisted version of these things. The presumptuous person overreaches to do great acts that are above his or her power, overestimating his or her abilities out of a desire to be greater than he or she is. The ambitious person desires too much to receive honor from others. And vainglory shows us where we end up if this is the road we take. Our desire for attention so fundamentally undercuts the value of what we are supposed to be doing, pursuing virtues, following the, uh, the example of the Lord Jesus. So what are we to do? What are we to do? I've mentioned that we are to recognize that it is by the grace of God that we are able to do these things, to be virtuous. And this points us to humility. A pair of authors describe humility as an unusual, unusually low concern for status, coordinated with an intense concern for some good, a, relatively lack, a relative lack of concern to appear excellent to others. And again, we see this in our text, in which we have a woman in this story has desired to do a beautiful thing to Jesus. She is unconcerned what other people think about her and her action. I think we can be fairly certain, even though Matthew doesn't tell us this, that she did not pour the perfume on Jesus with the thought, you know what, if I do this, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what I have done will be told in memory of me. No. She does this because there is love in her heart. She is driven, I would say, by the Spirit. And here she does a beautiful thing and she doesn't care what other people think about it. She is, in a true sense, a humble person. She's an example of humility. To do the right thing while avoiding vainglory is a difficult task. Because there is the temptation to say, look at me, I'm doing the right thing. And I've been consistently doing the right thing. And I'm actually doing it better than I used to do. Vainglory, I think, is a very real temptation. The Desert Fathers had a lot to say about this. Living in southern Egypt, out in the middle of nowhere, um, they had a lot to say about this. And I'm not sure they were always right. Um, I'll give you one story in which I think they were right, and one in which I think they, they were not. I'll start with the wrong one first. By the way, they use uh, the title Abba, which means father. Uh, and so a monk would be known as Abba, and then we have his name. So once a judge heard of Abba Moses and went to see him. They told the old man, that is Moses, that the judge was on his way, and he rose up to flee. 
The judge and his train met him and asked, Tell me, old man, where is the cell of Abba Moses? And the old man said, Why do you want to see him? He is a fool and a heretic. The judge came to the church and said to the clergy, I have heard of Abba Moses and came to see him. But an old man on his way to Egypt met me and I asked him, Where was the cell of Abba Moses? And he said, Why are you looking for him? He is a fool and a heretic. The clergy were distressed and said, What sort of person was your old man who told you this about the holy man? And he said he was an old man, tall and dark, wearing the oldest possible clothes. And the clergy said, that was Abba Moses. And he told you this about himself because he did not want you to see him. And the judge went away much edified. Well, I'm not sure that the way to avoid vainglory is to lie about yourself and to say, I'm a fool and a heretic. Um, we do see, though, that Moses, when he heard that someone was coming, in essence, to praise him, that he got up and left. He was not going to stay there and subject himself to the temptation of vainglory by having this man come in and say, oh, I've heard all these wonderful things about you. On the other hand, there is a story that I think is, is right. There's a story in which a man came to a desert father for advice on, you know, I want to die to the world. And I want death to the world to become a reality in my life. This is how the story goes. A brother came to see Abba Macarius, the Egyptian, and said to him, Abba, give me a word. So the old man said, go to the cemetery and abuse the dead. The brother went there, abused them, and threw stones at them. And he returned and told the old man about it. The latter said to him, didn't they say anything to you? He replied, no. The old man said, go back tomorrow and praise them. So the brother went away and praised them, calling them apostles, saints, and righteous men. He returned to the old man and said to him, I have complimented them. And the old man said to him, did they answer you? The brother said, no. The old man said to him, you know how you insulted them? They did not reply. And how you praised them? And they did not speak. So you too, if you wish to be saved, must do the same and become a dead man. Like the dead, take no account of either the scorn of men or their praises. Here, I think, when it comes to vainglory, Macarius has something to say to us. Vainglory seeks the praise of others. Sometimes it is not deserved, but other times it is deserved, and that, I think, makes it more dangerous. We are to avoid the vice of vainglory. But how are we to do that? How are we to wean ourselves away from the desire, from receiving, just feeling the pleasure of people's praise or the pressure of people's praise? How do we keep our focus on using the gifts God has given us and doing so not just ordinarily, but doing them excellently? and still not falling prey to the vice of vainglory. Following the teachings and advice of others, I would suggest two spiritual disciplines that will help us deal with vainglory. They will, in fact, be pathways to virtue and practices of resistance. Now, before I I do this, let, let me be clear about this. No practice by itself can guarantee that we will be free from the vice of vainglory or the temptations that come with it. 
but we do need to be aware of the threats that we are facing. We need to be aware of where our vulnerabilities lie. And now we have strategies that our brothers and sisters in the church in the past have used these things. They have been battle tested, if you wish. These aren't things that we've just made up. These are things that the church has been practicing for centuries. So two disciplines. The first is silence. The first thought, I think, in this matter is it may simply not be possible. Particularly for those who have children. And as I was preparing the sermon, I I kept thinking of mothers in our church who have children. Uh, Silence isn't necessarily something that they can practice. But the practice of silence, the discipline of silence, can be practiced in a variety of ways. You can, in fact, maintain silence for a period of time, something we did here in the past, for an hour or less, to say, I will be silent, I will be quiet during this time. But again, with those with children, this may not be possible. But I would suggest another way to practice the discipline of silence is to not talk about yourself. Not talk about your needs or your wants. If we practice this form of silence, this in fact undercuts. It cuts us off from a major mode of self-representation or self-presentation. Vainglory, if you wish. It means that we pass up opportunities to gain and shape other people's attention. In other words, I can't tell you if, if I practice this discipline, and let me be clear here at the beginning, this isn't something we do all the time. But for a period of time we say, okay, tomorrow from this time to this time, I'm not going to talk about myself. And that may be on the phone, that may be on Facebook or other social media. Uh, I'm not going to send an email about what's going on in my life. For this period of time, I will not talk about myself. And when we do that, in a sense, we are, we are allowing people to think whatever they want about us without us saying, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And, you know, I was sort of blue yesterday and it was because of this. No, we just are quiet. If we practice this silence, by the way, this discipline of silence, it allows us to be more attentive to others. Do you ever notice that when you're having a conversation you're already preparing your answer as the person is talking, which means that you're really not fully listening. You're, you're in preparation. But what if instead you're not going to respond, so then you have a space in which you can truly listen to what this person is saying. As one writer put it, the, still, the silence of the Christian is listening silence, humble stillness. Now, If you go home and you say, I'm going to try to practice what Damon said, I think if we begin to do this, we will find it frustrating at first. But it does, in fact, open us us up to new modes of conversation, communication. Joseph Piper said, only the one who is silent can hear. And in our silence, we begin to hear others more clearly. Another wrote, silence frees us from the need to control others. 
One reason that we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. A frantic stream of words flows from us in an attempt to straighten others out. We want so desperately for them to agree with us, to see things our way. We devour people with our words. Silence is one of the deepest spiritual disciplines simply because it puts the stopper on that. Professor DeYoung has, in fact, in her classes, done an experiment with her students in which they fast, not from all words, but from speaking about themselves. She writes this. What would it be like not to talk about our feelings, frustrations, daily adventures and trials, excuses and rationalizations, not only in person, but also on Facebook, Twitter, phones and blogs? Like fasting from food, this discipline requires that we give up a good thing for a time in order to recognize the ways that our use of it or our dependence on it has become distorted and excessive. She and her students have done this in the past. They did it for a week. And in the process, they became aware of two things. First of all, they realized how much work it was to pay attention to other people in conversation when you know that you won't be contributing. The focus is entirely on the other person who is talking. There's no anticipation of you giving feedback. You're just sitting there listening. She noted listening actively and attentively was hard for us. But it did, however, deepen our friendships. The second thing the students realize is that there are times when they really need to talk. That, in fact, they really, they rightly missed being able to share themselves through speech. There are times when speaking about yourself is necessary for closer relationships. She writes that the response to this practice was that it was difficult, but also utterly convicting. If not talking about oneself and instead listening, you become aware of the fact that, oh, wait a minute, when I'm talking about myself, I'm really trying to, you know, aggrandize myself. I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm showing myself off to be something perhaps that I'm not. In a, in a word, it's vainglorious. And then there is the practice of silence in the presence of God, in which a space is created in our lives to hear God in prayer as Jesus did when he retreated from the crowds to be alone with God. Silence is a regenerative practice of attending and listening to God in quiet, without interruption and noise. Silence offers a way of paying attention to the Spirit of God. So to help us avoid vainglory, let's not be like Moses and say we're fools and heretics. Let us strive for excellence, but practice the discipline of silence. The second one may be even harder for the mothers in our church, but for many of us as well, and that is the discipline of solitude. In silence, we deny ourselves speech. In solitude, we deny ourselves an audience. It is a withdrawing from others for a time. As with silence, solitude may be practiced in a variety of ways for various periods of time at different times of the day. It may sound terrifying or boring or both, and it may be initially when we begin to practice this 
this discipline. But it is also a powerful way to break out of the patterns and expectations of audience feedback. What would it be like to be alone and not have an audience? Oftentimes we are so geared to our audience and that opens up to, opens us up to the vice of vainglory. Without an audience, you don't have to work at getting attention from anyone. No performance is needed. No one is watching you. You can just be yourself. One writer put it this way, solitude allows us to lay down the crushing burden of the opinions of others. You don't have to think about what other people think of you. You're alone. There is no audience. There is no jury, if you wish, making a judgment on you. Part of what solitude does is remove us from a world in which our contributions and worth are measured by our achievement, where people are judging us, and where our actions are always being assessed by others. Henry Nouwen has written about the practice, the discipline of solitude, and he recommends having a designated place, a quiet and distraction-free place, perhaps a corner of the bedroom, a comfortable chair on the porch, a quiet park bench. The simpler the environment, the better, he writes. But also something to focus on because our thoughts may wander. In solitude, we both relinquish the audience, but we are also replenished. We need solitude if we intend to unmask the, the, the facade that we have created for ourselves, this important looking image that we have created for others. We relinquish our self-importance, our vainglory, if you wish, and in its place is the presence of God. One writer put it this way, In solitude we find the truth of who we are in Christ. We are the beloved, and God is pleased with us. This identity is given, it is not earned. Many other voices pull at us, seeking to own and name us. But in solitude, we learn what it is to distinguish between the voice of God and the voices of the world. There is no audience. There is only God. In the life of Jesus, think about this, after 40 days of solitude, we think of it as the temptations in the wilderness, but after 40 days of solitude, he came to the Jordan River to be baptized, and there he heard God's voice clearly affirming this is my son whom I love. It is after the solitude that he hears the voice of God. The mask that we wear before God or that we wear before men will do us no good before God. He wants to see you as you are. He seeks to be gracious to you. This is from Bonhoeffer. Without the regular practice of solitude to recenter our li- ourselves on what God says about us and to empty ourselves of the world's expectations, to fill ourselves with the fullness of his love, we can easily get swept up into vainglory. The incessant and fr- frantic activities of pleasing others, a job that is never done, because we're always trying to please other people. We enjoy glory appropriately when our enjoyment of it and all of God's gifts are anchored in our identity as God's children. If you wish, what Jesus heard at the Jordan River, in a sense we hear, this is my child whom I love. 
But sometimes we don't hear that because we are so busy trying to perform in front of other people. Have you ever experienced this? Let's assume that you haven't, that I'm the only one who has. That you care what somebody thinks about you, someone that you don't know, and someone that you will never again see in your life. And yet somehow what they think about you becomes important. Perhaps all important. When, in truth, God has always known us. Before we were born, he knew us. We will spend eternity with him. He loves us. This is my child whom I love. But if we are not silent and if we are not in solitude at different points, again, this is not, this, these disciplines aren't something we do 24-7. They are times in the day in which we are quiet. We are alone. And there we can hear the voice of God. And again, the answer is not, I'm just going to be ordinary. I don't want to do, I don't want to get, don't want anybody to notice me. But if God has given you gifts, then you are supposed to use those gifts. You are to strive for excellence. With those gifts also come the temptation. And the answer is not to say, well, I'm not going to do that. But in fact, to pursue excellence and by God's grace, avoid the vice of vainglory. Our goodness is from God and it is for God. Our goodness is real and it is really ours. It's a gift of love from the source of all good gifts. That is from God the Father. Which means we should not be slaves to human opinion, what other people think about us. We shouldn't try to be something we're not so that they will like us. Because our goodness comes from God and is for God, we can display, we can celebrate, we can share our good gifts, our excellent gifts that God has given us. And by God's grace, we can do it without the self-promotion of vainglory. That we can seek to pursue excellence and recognize it as a gift from God and not be swept in or sucked in by the vice of vainglory. So wherever you are on the Christian journey, perhaps you feel, I'm still, Damon, I'm still at the early stage, the immature stage. I'm still struggling with elementary grades, things. Okay? Or if you may say, listen, I, I think I've, you know, without being proud, I've achieved a certain amount of maturity. Wherever we are on the spectrum, the vice of vainglory is a real danger for us. And, but by God's grace, we can, in fact, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have to be prisoners of this vice, either as individual Christians or as a congregation. We can, in fact, glory in what God has given us without being guilty of vainglory. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us so much. You have been so good to us. 
And as I think of each one in this congregation, you have gifted each one with wonderful and amazing gifts. And as we've talked about vainglory, we might be tempted to think that we should suppress these gifts because people might notice us if we do great things. Help us to see that this is not the answer. You have given these gifts to us, not for us, but for others. That we serve you by serving others as we walk in our callings. But we are to recognize whatever we achieve. The growth that we experience is by your grace. And perhaps what we need to do is to practice the disciplines of silence and solitude. To remove ourselves from the jury, the audience that is all around us. And come to see that you are the only one that matters. And you've already told us that you love us. We are your children whom you love. Help us to think through these things. And by your grace, by your spirit, put them into practice. We remember Titus's mom mentioned earlier. Uh, you'd give the doctors wisdom as they deal with her condition. For his uncle as well. We pray for Frankie. For Kendra, Hillary, Anna Ruth, the Coburn students who are with us for a period of time, wherever they are, may they have a sense of your presence and your hand in their lives. And now as we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we have a sense that you are with us every step of the way in this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.